The Breakfast Club is one of my favorite movies. I know. Jang, how many favorite movies can you have? All of them. But this one's iconic, right? It is an iconic movie from the 80s, directed by John Hughes in 1985. It's a story of five students from very different walks of life that are stuck in detention together. You have a brain, an athlete, a basket case, a princess, and a criminal. And they're in detention, and the principal of the school sees them as that exactly. He classifies them into these groups because of either who they hang out with, how their families are, how they act. He puts them into these boxes. But this movie was so powerful because it conveys this message that it is important that we don't prejudge people based on how they look or where they come from and to show that everyone is a struggling person and that it's important to be seen by others. And that's what we see in the story of Jesus and the sinful woman. This specific collision of grace is my favorite gospel story. The beauty of grace and forgiveness from God through Jesus Christ alone shows us how we are to live as followers of Jesus and how we should be continually being transformed into his image and likeness. And because of that, how we are to engage others inside a church family and outside a church family. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the words and the songs that we sing. Thank you for the text in your word that gives us, that just point to hope in your son. Lord, I just pray for this morning that it's all about you. It's all about Jesus. May you be glorified. May you be magnified. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So we're going to spend our time in Luke 7, verses 36 through 50 today. And the text reads this. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who was touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. 
Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. To fully understand what's going on in this story, in Luke 7, Jesus is in the area of Galilee doing his earthly ministry. He's healed a servant of a centurion. He's raised a widow's son from the dead. He's even encountered, encountered some of the followers of John the Baptist saying, hey, I am the Christ. Go and confirm that and let him know that. Also in the other Gospels, there's a, a story that's pretty similar to this one about Jesus and a woman, but it's a little different because the stories in Matthew, Mark, and John involve him with a guy named Simon the leper, not Simon the Pharisee. And also the timing of that story in those Gospels are near the end of his life, closer towards the time of his crucifixion. And here in Luke 7, this is a story unique to Luke because he is still in the midst of doing his earthly ministry. And so we begin with Jesus and this woman who was considered a sinful woman. It was an honor for a rabbi to come to the host to be hosted at a dinner. And one can assume that this Pharisee had a lot of money because if you're going to host a party, you need to have a big house or you can't have a very big party. And hospitality is oh so important. And we see that Jesus in Luke 5 was uh, accused of hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. But here he's willing to eat with the religious. It shows, it shows that Jesus is willing to hang out with whomever. He's willing to reveal his grace to whomever. That's what a collision of grace is. And so when it says that Jesus was reclining at table, this is how they would eat at dinner. They would lay on their side, propped up on their left arm. I'm not going to get down because I won't be able to get back up. But they would lay down on their side, feet extended out, usually a pillows under their left arm, holding them up at a lower table, and they would just eat with their right hand. And so that's how they eat. So uh, the painting that y'all saw earlier, inaccurate, but it's art, so it's okay. But that's how we can understand. That's probably how uh, the Last Supper was as well when Jesus was with his disciples. But in verse 37, this sinful woman comes into the story. And we don't know what her sin is. We just know that she was a sinful woman. In the eyes of the Pharisees, she was just an irreligious person. It was very interesting in the different commentaries that I used to prep for this message. They were trying to say, well, she could have been this, she could have been this, she could have been this. And I was like, I don't care. That's not what matters here. This is a woman with dignity. This is a human being. She's a person. And so we need to focus on her as a person in her humanity because the reality is, as a quote-unquote sinful woman, she's been shunned by society already. She's had insults thrown at her. Her self-image is probably terrible, a, a broken spirit, shattered dreams. Pastor Dave Munzinger months ago preached on the woman at the well, and he introduced the song, I Dreamed a Dream from Les Mis, that's sung by Fontaine, and she's wondering, how did I get to this very place where I am as a prostitute? Right? This woman, this sinful woman could be very similar to that of the Samaritan woman. She didn't grow up thinking she was going to live this life. But due to circumstances, that's what happened. But she's more than that. We see here she was a sinner. She was a sinner. She's no longer a sinner. It's past tense. This means that she already had salvation prior to coming to see Jesus she is a follower of Christ now, and that's how we need to see her in this story. 
Because somewhere she heard the words of Jesus. Somewhere she heard the words of grace and forgiveness, mercy, love, restoration, hope, access to the kingdom of God through Jesus alone. So she's not a sinful woman. She's a redeemed woman. Amen. And so how does she get into this party, right? It's a VIP party. Well, in the culture, in these big parties that would be held in a courtyard, the doors to the house would be open so people could see in and see what was going on because you wanted to see a rabbi speak or even a potential prophet if that's what they were trying to see with Jesus. But in addition, the poor and the needy in the area could come and get leftovers from the party when it was done. And so this woman, because of her status, she wasn't invited into the party. And so we have to understand that round one was for the guests and round two was for the lowly which is when she would have been acceptable for her to go into the party. She has this alabaster flask of ointment. This alabaster flask was, uh, was expensive. It was made of marble. It had a, a thin neck, and uh, to use the contents, you had to break it off. So you couldn't save it for another day once it was opened. And this perfume was an expensive perfume. It wasn't like when I was a kid and you would go to the mall and they had the kiosk that would sell like the big jugs of uh, perfume or cologne for like 15 bucks. Right? This was really high-quality stuff. That was in this alabaster jar, this flask. And her plan was to use it all for Jesus. This woman's act, as we see in verse 38, if you look at it in the Greek, it's all in an imperfect tense. So you could read it as, she kept wetting his feet with her tears. She kept wiping with her hair. She kept kissing his feet. She kept anointing his feet. So it was just going on and on and on, to the point to where it probably felt really awkward and uncomfortable for those that were watching So she was standing behind Jesus again because when she comes in, his feet are what's out. So she can't really step over him to anoint his head. So she weeps on his feet. Martin Luther said that these were heart, her her tears were like heart water. The Greek term uses that it was like rain showers because these weren't little tears. This would be what you would call an ugly cry. That's what was going on. And in the culture at that time, only the lowest slaves of the slaves touched the feet. But not only did she do that, she wiped his feet with her hair. She took her hair down. Remember, culturally, a woman's hair was her crown of glory, as we see in 1 Corinthians. So letting your hair down would be considered an act of immodesty. But she wasn't worried about that because she was in the presence of her Savior. She didn't have a towel, so I'll use my hair because that's what I want to do. And she kissed his feet. And it's not like a PDA, weird feet kissing, right? This is a kiss that you give in reverence to someone, my Lord, my Savior. And the kiss that she is using is a stronger, more intense version of the word kiss as we see in the story of the prodigal son when the father kisses his son upon his return. She anoints his feet with perfume. Normally it's going to be used on a head, but she didn't care. I'm going to use the most expensive perfume I have and put it all on the feet of Jesus Christ. And why? She's worshiping. She is worshiping her Lord and Savior. Notice she says nothing. It's all her actions. Because a lot of times our words get in the way of our worship. She didn't need words to show that she loved Jesus. Her actions showed it all. It showed her gratitude. It showed her humility. And she didn't care about the cultural norms. I'm going to worship my Savior. Because her burden and guilt are gone because she learned that his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and she now has comfort and rest in her soul because her salvation was worth it all. Anyone can say that they worship Jesus with their words, but a lot of times their actions may not line up. And so as we look at this woman and her life, 
right? I've been using the, the term application. I'm going to start using theology in action because this is what we believe and this is what we need to do with what we believe. Let's put our theology to practice and it's worship. This woman worshiped. She worships Jesus without any hesitation and we need to ask ourselves, how do we worship? Why do we worship? And we know the head answer, but do we live that answer out? Our response to our salvation must be a deep and authentic worship for our Savior in all facets of our lives. Our response to salvation must be to worship the one who gave it to us with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So the story continues now because the Pharisee who we see is is known as Simon, he says to himself, right? So he's thinking in his mind here. He's not speaking out loud because he wants to be respectful And he's thinking, this guy surely can't be a prophet. Not if he's going to let this sinful, dirty, disgusting person touch him. Because no prophets are to tolerate sinful people. But guess what? Jesus doesn't differentiate between outward sin and inward sin. He engages all. And we see how Jesus receives people. He receives the people that the Pharisees reject. Because the Pharisees were known as the separated ones. That's why they had no interaction with the unclean sinners of the world. And instead of interacting them to maybe give them a chance to meet who God is in their lives, they completely ignored them and avoided contact and relationship with them. They're very much like the rich ruler that we talked about a few weeks ago. I got all the outward actions down, but my inside actions might not be as good. So again, they ignore their own pride, their hypocrisy, their self-righteousness, lack of compassion, judgmentalism, bad tempers, etc., 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 And the thing is, we might be that way too very often. We might compare ourselves to people that have blatant outward sins and feel that we are better than them. We might look down upon the addict. We might look down upon the prostitute, the murderers, the homosexuals. We might feel pretty good about ourselves because we don't sin like that. And this swings us into the story of the prodigal son, and that makes us like the older brother. Right? The prodigal enjoyed reckless living, but the prodigal's older brother had a reckless heart. We have to be careful that we don't fall into either camp. And the issue is because we typically look at people from a horizontal perspective. I can see your sin, your sin, your sin. Everyone looks different. But when we think about God, he looks at us from a vertical position. And so he sees everyone as the same. Sin is sin is sin. But Jesus, as we continue in this text, because he's God incarnate, he can read his thoughts. We see the omniscience of the Christ in this, confirming his divinity. And Jesus can see the disgust in this man's heart. But Jesus says, I have something to say to you. So this is basically a blunt statement that he's about to give that the person that he's going to say to you might not want to hear. It's a respectful tone that Jesus is using because Jesus isn't a jerk. But Simon's response to him is saying, tell me then, teacher, right? Him calling him teacher is showing that he's already ignoring the fact that he could be considered a prophet. He's already thinking less of Jesus in this. And Simon is about to be rebuked by Jesus at his own party. So the reality is everyone should get their popcorn and get ready for this show that's about to happen. And so Jesus says, since you're going to call me teacher, then I'm going to give you a test. Here's a quiz, hotshot. Are you going to pass? He gives a story. So Jesus is the greatest storyteller ever. It's in verse 41. He says, hey, there's a guy that owes 500 denarii and a guy that owns 50. 
right? Five, one denarii is a, a day's wage. So you have someone that owes one and a half years. And this money lender who's owed the money says, Hakuna Matata, it's all good. You don't got to pay me. Had them thrown in prison. Had them come be a slave or a servant. text is rooted in the word grace. Charis. So which debtor will love this money lender more? We're the same regardless of the debt you owed. And Jesus is given a metaphor. Debt is sin. Debtors are sinners, even if they're different levels, right, per se, or have different sins. And the money lender is God. So the point of this is that debt is debt regardless. Sin is sin regardless. And forgiveness is forgiveness regardless. Charles Spurgeon says that all men are debtors to God, yet some are greater debtors than others. But Jesus, grace is his motivation in receiving sinners, which is why he's always open towards them. The sinner or the, the debtor that owes more to the money lender, uh, the, the one that loves, the word is agapao. And so it's rooted in love. But the use of this word takes the word love and gratitude in our English vernacular and combines them into one word, meaning that love and gratitude always go together. You can't take it apart. And Jesus wants us to see that wherever we have love, we must have gratitude. You can't have one without the other. Are we grateful? As followers of Jesus who have been forgiven much, are we grateful for our salvation? Well, Simon answers the question, well, I suppose the guy who owes more is loves him more. And Jesus is like, that's right. But is the point having the right answer? No. Right answers don't matter if you don't do anything with them. It's what do we do with the correct answer. That's what matters to Jesus here then and matters today here at CBC in 2022. So the theology in action here, the application of what we do with this knowledge is gratitude. Are we grateful for our salvation? Do we worship Jesus for our salvation? Because if we don't every day with every breath, we might not be grateful for it. It's very dangerous to not consider the blessing of grace. And we'll take our salvation for granted. And if we don't consider the magnitude of our salvation, we will overlook the cost of it, the price paid for it. I'll tell you what, I was so convicted this week, prepping for this. So convicted. Because there are days that I pass that I don't wake up and thank God for salvation. I confess that before you all. I repented of that this week. This woman's worship and her gratitude was a sobering reminder for me to not ever take it for granted. And as we were singing, oh, the blood earlier, goodness gracious, I have no idea how I was able to keep myself together. Because that's why we get to do what we do here. All because of Jesus, all because of our salvation. And so, church fam, let us never take our salvation for granted let us never take our transformation into the image of Jesus for granted because of who we once were and who we are now in Christ. And the story continues. 
Jesus turns toward the woman as he's speaking to Simon. So he's right, rotated like this. He's basically now flipping onto his arm this way and looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon, right? He's showing this woman the attention that, that she deserves because of her worship. Not deserves, but he loves her. And that's what he wants Simon to know. And he says to Simon, do you see this woman? I know you see her, but do you see her? Do you see a repentant person? Because Simon didn't see a sinner that was seeking forgiveness. He didn't see a redeemed woman worshiping because of forgiveness. He just saw a sinful woman because that is how he has classified this person. Simon doesn't feel, he just feels that this is a despised person. This is not someone that is worthy of salvation. Simon was not merciful. Simon, again, knew the right answer to the question, but he didn't live the right answer because he wasn't going to apply the principle of the story to his life. And Jesus is saying, that's what I need you to know. That's what I want you to know and experience. You need to put this theology into action. And the reason why Simon doesn't care is because he has minimized his own sin and maximized the sins of others. It's a very dangerous game to play. So Jesus now continues to talk to Simon, and he says, let me tell you what this woman did for me that you didn't. You didn't even have water for my feet, because culturally, usually a servant would remove a guest's sandals and wash his or her, his feet and then wipe it with a towel. He didn't get that. You didn't give me a kiss, which was a common greeting culturally at that time. That's why in the Bible it says, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's what they did culturally. You didn't put oil on my head. And the oil that they would use to anoint the head was like an inexpensive olive oil, right? The stuff we cook with. You gave me a very low-class treatment. You weren't required to show me all this hospitality, but that's what people do when they value a guest coming to their house. You had little love, Simon, is what Jesus says. But this redeemed woman, she wet my feet with her tears, and she wiped them with her hair. She has not ceased to kiss my feet in reverence to me. She anointed my feet with the most expensive perfume that you could buy. She gave me a high-class treatment. She lavished her love upon me in her worship. So he's saying to Simon, who showed more hospitality to me? You know, in this process, I love when I get to preach because I get to tell you all about my Chinese culture. And so here comes another little lesson, right? Hospitality is very important in not just Middle Eastern culture, but Far Eastern culture as well. And so I'm going to give you guys a little lesson about like an Asian hospitality starter pack. Anytime you would come to our house, we would have oranges out. And that's why you get oranges when you go to Chinese restaurants. If they're showing hospitality, you'll get some oranges at the end of your meal. But the oranges would represent gold and prosperity and health. That's why they put it out, because that's what they wish for their guests. But if you really want to be super hospitable, you'll put out the Ferrero Rocher chocolates, right? Those hazelnut chocolates. I'm telling you, next time you go to an Asian person's household, if they're out, you're getting the supreme treatment if you get that and oranges. That makes you like the real MVP of hospitality. Every time we would go to my aunt's house, all those, and can I share something? I think they're terrible. <laughs> I don't get it. 
But what Jesus is doing, he's telling Simon, he's not telling her, this woman did more than you. He's saying, look what she did that you didn't do. He's saying to Simon, I love this woman. Even in her sinfulness, I receive her. In her humility, I receive her. I'm not excusing her sins or her past lifestyle, but I do receive her in her sinfulness. And I do redeem her from her sinfulness. And I give her my righteousness so much that when God sees her, he sees me in her. Simon, I love this woman because where sin abounded, my grace abounded even more. That's why I love the book of Luke. The key verse of Luke is in Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And we see that confirmed in 1 Peter 4.8. Love covers a multitude of sins. So the theology in, in action here is compassion. Do we see people? Are we merciful like Christ as he gives in the Sermon on the Mount? Do we see people where they currently are, or do we see people of who they can be fully in Christ? We have to be careful to not fall into Camp Simon. May we never be so arrogant and cocky, thinking that we are better than others, just because we sin differently. We have to remember that God isn't for one type of sinner over the other. He hates all of the sin, but he also redeems all sin through Jesus alone. And that's why we have, we have to have a heart of gratitude, of thanks, and worship like this woman. Because that allows you to be merciful. May we remember the words from 1 Corinthians 6.11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let us be compassionate and merciful as followers of Jesus on this earth. And closes it out in this beauty here. If this is a movie, right, you zoom in to Jesus and this woman and the rest is blurred. And you just see the intentionality of what Jesus is saying to this woman in this beautiful moment. In this collision with grace. Your sins are forgiven. How freeing is it for this woman to hear those words again? Because she has reaffirmed her forgiveness. Forgiven here is a perfect tense word. It means it is a state of forgiveness that she is in and will forever be in. You are forgiven. You will remain forgiven. You are forever forgiven. That's why she came to worship Jesus. That's why she didn't care about following cultural rules of coming in later on. I'm going to worship now. And so this is my encouragement to you. If you're struggling today in your faith journey and think maybe I've lost my relationship with Jesus, this perfect tense reminds you as a follower of Jesus, you're forgiven forever. You can't lose this forgiveness. This is yours forever. So you can think of the words in Isaiah 38, 17, where your sins are out of sight. Or in Hebrews 8, 12, where your sins are out of mind. Psalm 103.12, your sins are out of reach. And Psalm 51.1, your sins are out of existence. That is what a state of forgiveness is. It's forever forgiveness. I do have to have a doctrine moment here. Because some people who believe that works is what is needed for salvation use this passage to justify that. 
This woman was forgiven because she worshiped Jesus. Well, that is incorrect because there is no such things as a works-based salvation in our Christianity. Because she already came, let's go back to the beginning. She was a sinner, so she was already forgiven when she came. That enough, that is enough in itself to confirm that she was already saved. But because of the perfect tense of forgiveness, her sins were forgiven prior to this. They were not a result of her worshiping Jesus. It is impossible to earn salvation. Our works are meaningless apart from salvation. New Testament scholar David Garland reminds us, the reality is that we all start out with an F and work it into an F minus. Meaning that when we come into the world and in academics, we don't start with an A and go down in grades. We start with an F and the best we can do is an F minus. Forgiveness is not a result of this woman's acts. It's not a result of her agapao. Her worship is a result of her forgiveness. Because that's what followers of Jesus do. And this is a loving reminder to this woman again. I don't, that I don't care what Simon thinks of you. I don't care what society thinks of you. I love you. You are my child. But the Pharisees won't have any of that. In verse 49, who's this guy? Who does he think that he is? Well, in Luke 5, 24, I am the son of man, and I have the authority on earth to forgive sins. I am more than a rabbi. I am more than a prophet. I and the Father are one. I am God in flesh, and I am here to save mankind. And so we close it out with this beauty in verse 50. This woman probably came to the party, maybe with some fear, maybe some guilt, maybe some shame, but she left in peace. Because her faith is what saved her. That's it. If you want access to God's kingdom, you just need to have faith. So Jesus says shalom, right? The typical farewell, but when you take that in context of a saving salvation, it's not just going in peace. She can have peace. She can walk in peace. Just as in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's our last theology in action. The forgiveness that we receive through Jesus is a beautiful picture of faith and forgiveness. That's what this story is all about. Faith is all that you need. And maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you feel unworthy. Remember that Jesus doesn't stop loving you. To me, he loves you even more, and you can remember that. Maybe you're having a collision with grace today, and you've never experienced this ever. Grace meets you in your sin and shame. Because that's the beauty of forgiveness. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven by Jesus. There is no sin that cannot be redeemed by Jesus. Jesus receives you as you are. He offers forgiveness to you. And because he is Lord, that gives you access to God's kingdom if you place your faith in him alone as deliverer. Because that's the gospel. That's what a collision with grace is. Jesus gave relief and hope to those who waited faithfully and patiently. Jesus healed the leper and the paralytic in their body and soul. Jesus loved the societal rejects of that time. Jesus loved those who were considered unlovable and unsavable because that's who he is and that's what he does. That's Jesus. That's grace.